Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Intelligence Squared, where great minds meet. I'm senior producer Connor Boyle. Coming up, Angela Saini, the award-winning science journalist, is here to discuss her most recent book, The Patriarchs. Joining Angela in conversation is the zoologist Lucy Cook. Lucy is the author of the book Bitch, A Revolutionary Guide to Sex, Evolution and the Female Animal. The Origins of Inequalities, a topic with no shortage of strands of debate to talk about. And if you're an Intelligence Squared member, you can get even more of the discussion. Head to intelligencesquared.com membership to sign up and you'll get the extended version of the chat, plus extra content, including our new global affairs series, The Saudi Project, our recent show all about AI, Power Trip, plus themed episode bundles, ad-free listening, and updates on our live events too. Or hit subscribe on Apple for just the audio. Now, let's join Lucy Cook and Angela Saini in conversation. Hello, and welcome to this Intelligence Squared event with Angela Saini. Angela is a British science journalist and broadcaster who's presented numerous science programmes on BBC Radio and television. She's the author of four books, including Superior, The Return of Race Science, and Inferior, How Science Got Women Wrong. But her new book that we're here to talk to her about today is The Patriarchs, How men came to rule. I've got dozens of questions, Angela, because I'm, I, this is like a sort of full fangirl moment for me because I'm oh, a huge, Jesus. huge fan of your writing. I've read all of your books and this latest one didn't disappoint. I was extremely excited because it tackles really what is the king of all questions, I'd say. It's the thing that we want to know the answer to, um, to try and save the planet. But it's a very, very big subject. Was it daunting? And how did you approach such a behemoth of a subject and a question? <laughs> it was, but the question I was actually asking was quite specific. So I'm not, you know, trying to paint an entire history of patriarchy or all the reasons in the entire world why male domination exists or the forms in which it exists. I'm, answering, I'm asking a very specific thing, which is how is it that when we can live in so many different ways as humans, we, so many of us have landed on these very rigidly male-dominated societies. How did that happen in the first place? And there is actually quite an interesting literature on that, not as much as you would expect, given how vital that question is to the question of equality or you know how we live. It, it feels so fundamental. Um, and there isn't that much out there, but it was a big topic of debate in the middle of the 19th century. So that is where I started. When the big revolutions in Europe were happening, when people started asking these questions about capitalism and social inequality and the roots of it, 
then naturally they looked at gender inequality and asked, how, why is it that we landed on this? And, you know, a lot of people still today assume that men and women are fundamentally different, naturally different, uh, and that social roles proceed from those differences. Um, what do you say to that for a start? <laughs> well, it was with inferior, really, that it became so clear to me at least, I'm sure it's, it was already clear to so many biologists and anthropologists that um, there is no natural reason why we would only live in male-dominated or re very rigidly patriarchal societies. Um, because for one thing, we live in so many different ways already. There, patriarchy is not the rule universally. The further back you go into history, the less of a rule it is. But even if you look at other animal species, and this is where this overlaps with your own work, um, when we talk, for example, about male domination among other primates, generally primatologists are not talking about males dominating females, they're talking about males dominating other males. So if we look at the two closest species to us genetically, chimpanzees and bonobos, um, chimpanzees are male dominated, there's no doubt, but generally what we're, what we're discussing there is uh, alpha males or males higher up the hierarchy dominating males lower down the hierarchy. And fe females actually have their own dominance hierarchies. If we look at bonobos, the other species just as close to us genetically, um, they are female dominated. This is a very clearly matriarchal species. And although it took some time for primatologists to accept that fact, in fact, uh, when I interviewed Franz Duval about this, and in his recent book, Different, um, he laid out just how difficult it has been for some scholars to accept that there is a female-dominated species <laughs> among closely related primates. But I've seen this for myself. I went to San Diego Zoo when I was writing Inferior, and um, I was there with Amy Parrish, a brilliant primatologist. And just when I got there, a male had been injured by an older female, and he was cowering to one side because he was scared that it might happen again. So this is a kind of clearly matriarchal species and it's nothing to do with size. It's nothing to do with power, physical power. It's all to do with networks and alliances. So among female bonobos, the females form very strong bonds, even with females who aren't kin, and it becomes impossible then for the males to move up that hierarchy in the same way. I visited San Diego Zoo with uh, with Amy Parrish as well, and uh, was just sort of just completely fell in love with the bonobos, and uh, it's such a sort of, I think I think Franz Duval called the bonobo a gift to the feminist movement, in fact, because of how they <laughs> they overturn this idea that patriarchy is burnt into primate DNA in such a fabulous um, way. But what about with humans though? Because there is this idea, isn't there, that there's a matrilineal paradox, and that and that true matriarchal societies don't exist. Tell me about your findings in humans. Well, we kind of marginalize non-patriarchal society. So matrilineal essentially means that descent and inheritance is recognized from mother to daughter rather than from father to son, as it is in patriarchy. And what you often get in matrilineal societies is matrilocality. So people tend to live in their mother's homes. Um, so there are some matrilineal societies, for instance, in which um, everyone will live in their mother's home over generations, which means that fathers are not necessarily raising their own children, they will be more focused on their nieces and nephews, so the children of their sisters. Um, 
Uh, so this kind of idea that there is only one way to have a human family, that the nuclear family in which a father is in charge, and that's essentially what patriarchy means, literally, it translates to the rule of the father. That rule of the father idea is certainly not universal, and anthropologists have documented at least 160 existing matrilineal societies even now. Um, and like I said, the further you go back into history, the more social variation you see. But even now, we have matrilineal societies dotted all across the Americas, um, indigenous societies mainly. Um, right across Africa, there's an entire what's known as a matrilineal belt of uh, matrilineal communities. And right across Asia, there are so many, and some of them are thought to be thousands of years old. Yeah, I mean, I thought that was fascinating because it... That I, I had no idea, even from, you know, I'm, I'm interested in the subject. I, I still didn't know how many there were. Um, tell me a little bit about Kerala, because I thought that was really interesting. So I have worked in India um, twice, and um, where I worked was Delhi. So Delhi is in the north of the country, and it is a notoriously um, unfavorable city for women, <laughs> putting it lightly. So when I was there, especially the first time when I was living there alone, I was told you should not go out alone at night. If you do go out, then go with a male relative or a friend. It's just not safe. And there have been, you know, it, it does feel like a very difficult city to navigate as a woman on your own. You do feel kind of constantly watched. Um, but what I was constantly told when I was growing up, and even when I was living in India, was it's not like this in the South, especially in Kerala. Kerala is lauded as this beautiful kind of, it's, very, it's a very lush green, of course, of where it sits, very near the equator, this lush green, beautiful state in which women have a great deal of, of authority and equality. It's all, always, um, it's sometimes even described as a matriarchal society. And that isn't absolutely true. <laughs> it's not as though women run everything in Kerala. But certainly there is this long tradition of matriliney um, that stems back to um, the kingdom of Travancore. So this is this very influential community of Nairs in which um, uh, descent and inheritances pass from mother to daughter, and families would live in these beautiful, big, extended households known as Taravads. So in these huge households in which the eldest female is the matriarch of the family, the royal family had very prominent um, women within it, and um, there was no... There was a lot of sexual freedom. So there is, there is some wonderful work that looks at the history of the Kingdom of Travancore, of the Nair Society, including Manu Pillai's book, um, Manu Pillai's Indian Historian. Um, and he writes very vividly about how much agency, sexual agency, education that women have in Carolyn society as a result of this matrilineal community, very influential matrilineal community. Now, the issue is that if you look historically at why is it that matrilineal societies fade, why do they disappear, looking at Kerala is a good example because here we have a very recent history, in fact, within living memory of how this happened. In the 19th century, late 18th, 19th century, um, as the British uh, were administering and governing this state, what you see is a real shock at the freedom and power that women have in this society. And missionaries and British judges and British uh, 
officials bit by bit try to shift uh, Nair society within the patriarchal model. And they do that in the belief that what they are doing is civilizing this community. They think of matrilineal uh, communities as something that is backward, that if you do not live in this father-led society, that you are um, you are kind of primitive in some way, that to be civilized is to be patriarchal. And so they carry through this. It's not so much a policy as a kind of drip feed effect within the laws, in legal judgments that are passed, all kinds of things that happen that slowly chip away at matrilineal customs within Kerala to the point where by the 1970s, after the British have left, cultural norms have changed so much that by 1976, the Kerala legislature uh, abolishes matrilineal altogether. So it is not a system in which people can live anymore because it's not legally um, sanctioned anymore by the state. So it's quite revealing, I think. It's a reminder that social change does not happen like a thunderbolt. You know, patriarchy is not introduced in some kind of vicious, violent way immediately. It happens bit by bit. It changes how people think, how they imagine themselves, how they imagine the people around them, and compare themselves to other what they imagine to be more modern societies. And that is how this social change happens. And I think that's a good lesson. If we look at Kerala and look at how matrilineal was abolished there, we remember that this is how social change probably happened right throughout history. Yeah, I, I found that really fascinating because, I mean, I think... You know, I'm fascinated by bias, particularly bias in in my subject in zoology, and you're fascinated by bias too. And I mean, it's clear that 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 sort of our ideas of sex and gender have been constructed through science and history, and a huge amount of bias has been involved in that. And 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 one of the things I found so fascinating is just the way that you've gone back to these actually physically managed to go back and visit some of these sort of ancient civilizations and sort of teased apart to find out what was the truth that went on there. And, and one of the kind of big, big stories in your book was the the oldest city in the world in, in Turkey that you visited. Tell me why that was so important to your narrative and what you found there. Well, inevitably, if you're looking at the uh, origins of something, if you're looking at the origins of inequality, which essentially was what I was trying to do with this book, then you have to end up at the beginning. And um, the furthest back I was able to go was the Neolithic. So Chattelhuyuk, which I'm sure many people will have heard of, it's a very famous settlement in southern Anatolia. This is on the border with Syria in Turkey, not very far from where the recent um, devastating earthquakes happened. This is a site that's more than 9,000 years old. Thousands of people live there. And it's incredibly sophisticated. So this isn't some kind of simple hunter-gatherer settlement, this is, um, you know, the houses, just to look at it, I stood on the precipice of this this cavernous kind of settlement. Um, archaeologists have been digging through it in layers. And what you see are these box-like houses without windows or doors. Instead, there would be a hole in the ceiling and a ladder and you would um, kind of go in and out of your home through using the ladder up to the roof and then business would be conducted on the top of these houses. On the walls are these vivid red frescoes of hunting scenes and vultures picking apart dead bodies, bull horns embedded in the walls, people's uh, bodies themselves 
buried in platforms underneath the floors where people lived, where people slept. So this is a such a complex place. It's pre-writing, as far as we're aware. Um, so we can't know what people were thinking. We, it, it involves so much speculation on the part of anthropologists to know what was going on. But every single archaeological measure that we have, every way that we have of measuring gender inequality in a settlement like this, in a site like this, tells us that men and women lived very similar lives. They ate pretty much the same food. Um, they were buried in very similar ways. And that's very important, especially here, because we see that burials were incredibly important. There was There, there is thought to have been a cult of the ancestor because um, bodies were handled so carefully and, and really revered. So we don't see men and women buried very differently. They did pretty much the same work. We can measure that through wear and tear on different parts of the body. Um, and even the size difference between them, so the height difference between men and women was very slight. So men and women lived pretty much the same lives. And this is what uh, archaeologist Ian Hodder, who was the leading archaeologist who worked there most recently, said to me was that gender just didn't matter very much here. Um, you know, and th these are 21st century ideas. We're talking about this idea of gender neutrality, of you know this being an ungendered place. But genuinely, we can't see any signs that, that whether you're a man or woman was of much significance to the life that you lived in Chatelhuyuk. And not just that, women were not invisible. So we see loads of female figurines, the most famous of which is the seated woman of Chatelhuyuk which is about as high as my hand, this very small, beautiful object, this figurine depicting a woman um, who seems older. She has these kind of deep indents in her skin, these glorious rolls of fat kind of switching, uh, spilling out around her. And she's sitting bolt upright, her, her back completely straight. And... Um, Underneath her resting hands are what look to be two big cats, possibly leopards, staring straight ahead as though she has tamed them. It is a figure of such authority, and it has really upturned the way that we imagine gender in prehistory. And I think it's a sign that we cannot assume that the past was as gendered as the present is. I, there is really no evidence of that. Yeah, and one of the things that I just thought was so fascinating was the, you know, when you look back at these 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 ancient societies, that not only was sort of you know gender, it was just less binary, you know. I mean, because we think of gender fluidity and this all being terribly new, and we've got to get used to this 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 new way of thinking. But actually, nothing new about it, is there? I mean, no, absolutely not. We cannot assume that the way we think about gender in whichever society you're in now was the way that people thought about it in the past. We do not have any um, sense in which that might be true. And in fact, we only have to look at present day societies, different cultures think about gender extremely differently. So one example I give in the patriarchs is if just to take an example of two patriarchal societies and how differently they think about gender. You look at the Vatican and you look at... Um, the Islamic Republic, uh, on the question of transgender, you know, where does gender reside in the body? For the Vatican, it resides in the body itself. So the way that God made you is the way that you are. You cannot switch gender. No amount of surgery will allow you to be another gender. 
in the Islamic Republic, which again is a patriarchal society, extremely patriarchal and conservative, just as much as the Vatican is, the idea is that gender resides in the mind. So if you believe yourself to be another gender, you should have surgery and then completely occupy that space that the other gender occupies, which means that if you're a transgender woman in Tehran, you're expected to live as a woman, to wear a veil and to marry and to do all those things. So, you know, you, we really do have to let go, relinquish this idea that we have always known what sex and gender is. There is really no truth to that. These, these are ideas that we have built and understood, and they're really culturally specific and time specific. I mean, that, that's, that's a huge thing. That's an, an amazing piece of research because obviously there's a, you know, there's a huge controversy today about definitions of sex and humans. And, and it seems that from what you're saying, that sex is, is more of a, of a cultural it's a, it's a, our notions of sex are cultural rather than, than biological, basically. Well, there are biological elements to them, of course, and we resort to biology when we think about sex. Of course, we do that all the time. But we can't assume that there is some consistent, perfect way in which we have always thought about sex, always, that humans have always imagined it this way. That just doesn't exist. And, and, and the other thing that's sort of fascinating to me about looking at these older cultures is that, I mean, you know, when, when, a, when a baby's born... In you know, in the Western world, first question: Is it a boy or a girl? You know, we, gender is is front and center in 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 our world. You know, it, we're so imprinted with it. It's hard to imagine these societies that you speak of where perhaps it, it wasn't so important. So so if there were all these societies that existed where gender was less significant, the big question, of course, is how and when did it change? <laughs> that is the big question. And I was, I was hoping deep down that there would be some kind of single catastrophic moment that could explain everything. This is what Friedrich Engels wrote about in the middle of the 19th century when he was writing about the family and the state. Um, he theorized that you know there was this world, and you see this in feminist literature all the time, this world historical defeat of the female sex, that once we were all matriarchal and then we became patriarchal, how did that happen? Um, and it was very difficult to answer that question in the 19th century because we didn't have as much information as we have now. We're actually well-placed to answer it now, which is part of the reason I was so desperate to write this book is because we know so much more about history, how gender played out in history, and also we have all these cross-cultural examples from the present. And what we see is that um, it isn't what anthropologists have sometimes thought it was. So often we um, we assume that it was agriculture, that the agricultural revolution was this big turning point because it requires upper body strength, because the, that was the advent of property, that as soon as you get property, that men want to claim that property and then, you know, slowly drip bit by bit, you get patriarchy. But actually, we have agriculture or we have animal and plant domestication for a very long time before we have any signs of, any clear signs of gender depression. So we can't pin it to that. I think what we can pin it to more decisively is the rise of the state. So when you see those very early states in ancient Mesopotamia, you know, along the Fertile Crescent, this is around, you know, 5,000 years ago or more, um, the big preoccupation of the elites in those big states was population. Of course, how do we get people to stay here and produce a surplus for the elites? to defend our states 
against um, incomers and expand our territory if necessary and conduct wars of conquest so we can grab more people and have more resources for the elites. Um, and that creates two pressures. Uh, number one, a pressure on people, on families to have more children. And number two, a pressure to be loyal to the state, that a family must be loyal in order to stay and defend the state. And of course, that creates gendered pressure then. What you see over time, and this happens not immediately, it happens very, very slowly, is you see that women slowly, instead of doing lots of different kinds of work, which they did before, and they start, their remit starts to narrow. So they start to be, the pressure falls on young women to have as many children as possible. And pressure starts to fall on young men to be available to fight, to be strong and stoic and um, brave and macho. So this is where we get our stereotypes now about femininity and masculinity uh, linked to motherhood and fighting and, and being a warrior is from those two twin preoccupations in those earliest states. And that's still an issue now. You go anywhere in the world, as soon as birth rates start to fall, governments start to get nervous. You, you only have to look, for example, in Hungary. They've introduced these remarkable incentives for women who have plenty of children, include, including they don't have to pay as, as much in, income tax as women who have fewer children. In China, they ended the one-child policy, um, but women still weren't having as, uh, as many children as the state wanted. And so they've introduced all these interesting measures. They've called on Chinese officials to come up with new ideas to encourage young people to have more children, including recently uh, telling college students they can have a week off, hoping that they will fall in love and then get married and have children earlier. Um, so this is, these are still preoccupations of patriarchal states to this day. Yeah, I mean, I thought that was just, I mean, just brilliantly diagnosed. I, I really enjoyed the, the the detective story that this book is actually, that you're going on to try and to find this, this, this sort of pivotal truth, I suppose. Um, and, you know, I think what's really fascinating is what you expose is that, you know, this, this, this thing that obviously not, it doesn't happen in a snap of time. There's not just the one moment where this, this gargantuan change happens, but also that, patriarchy isn't a monolith. It's not just one thing. You know, tell me a little bit about that. Well, you know, when I say the rise of the state precipitated this uh, kind of gendered oppression in which you start to see a division of labor between men and women and a change imbalance of power between men and women, that doesn't happen all over the world in the same way immediately. It's, it happens in certain parts of the world. These systems, these patriarchal systems are then exported by large states and empires, by the powerful to other parts of the world, and then they become adopted. In the same way that happened in Kerala, with the British in Kerala, you see that happening thousands of years ago by the big empires, the Romans, the Greeks, Mongols. But even within these patriarchal societies, you see a great deal of gender variation. So just to take the Mongol Empire, for instance, which is much later than in history, of course, this is around 12th, 13th century, here is a society that prizes sons, without a doubt. Um, it is extremely patriarchal. The men are definitely in charge. And yet, you still have women doing incredible amounts of work. Uh, they ride, I mean, according to the outsider accounts that we have of Mongol society, you see women riding horses as well as the men, 
governing, you know, managing large uh, communities, large societies, the setting up of homes, um, trade. If their men are missing, then they take over and take charge. And physically very strong. I mean, we have these accounts of women, um, of outsiders, foreigners to this society saying the women are so powerful and so strong, and this may be apocryphal, that they give birth standing up and then carry on as though nothing happened once a baby is born, which is remarkable. And it probably is apocryphal, but it just goes to show that even within patriarchal societies newly emerging, you see a huge amount of negotiation and variation in gender norms, in how people think about the roles of men and women, and of course, the interplay of other forms of oppression, including class and wealth. So for example, we have always had upper-class women in all societies who have had a great deal of power and wealth and, and control over many men in their societies as well as women. Um, so we can't think about gender equality as something or gender inequality as something separate from everything else. It is completely interwoven with everything else. And that explains the enormous variation that you get all over the world. And, you know, we, we, we have this idea, though, don't we, that, that it's, it's male dominance is, is, is easy and, and, and natural. But and I, I really enjoyed some of your stories about how that that wasn't the case even in 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 ancient greece which was you know as you said probably the worst place in human history to have been a woman yet oppressing women in that situation still wasn't straightforward was it yeah absolutely i mean this is we look to ancient greece and i think particularly in the west because we draw this straight line between those civilizations, the Greeks and Romans, and the present day. We feel ourselves to have inherited that civilization, and so we model ourselves on it. Our architecture is a, is a reflection of that. Even here, I live in New York now, you go downtown, it's all neoclassical columns. It's just everywhere, this, this idea that, um, that there is this kind of unbroken line between antiquity and the present. What we forget is that as misogynistic as ancient Athens was, there was also constantly this unease, this instability, this perceived instability around society. You look at Greek literature, it is deeply misogynistic, deeply hateful for women. But we have to ask ourselves, why? Why, if there is this group that you believe to be naturally subservient and inferior, why do you have to go to such lengths to vilify them? in literature, to be so scared of them. There are so many plays and dramas in which women threaten to overtake men or kill men. We have, you know, the legend of the Amazons, this idea that there is this superior race of women who will somehow overpower men if we're not careful. And I think what that, what that fear speaks to is this understanding that what we have created here is a society that is, to some degree, weird and unnatural. You only had to step outside ancient Athens to see that the rules were different in other societies. In ancient Egypt, at that same time, women worked in the professions. There were women pharaohs. They had, there were very powerful Egyptian queens. Um, we know that in Sparta, for instance, there were very different norms around what was appropriate for how men and women behaved, the visibility of girls and women and what they did, how much, women, how much property women owned. So within ancient Athens, we think of this place as 
you know, reflecting nature because it was so long ago. In fact, even by the standards of its own time, it was a very warped and strange society. And it was aware of that strangeness even to itself, because that's what we see in the subtext of the literature. Yes, it's certainly, um, the revelations in your book have certainly made me feel very different about that neoclassical architecture everywhere. And, um, and, and even just querying Boris Johnson's interest in the classics and, and just, the, just the classics being everywhere and really how much they're lauded. I mean, it's, 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 not, it's, not, it, it's not a time, it, it wasn't a time that you would want to be a woman at all, you know. Um, but, you know, do you think that, you know, because you, you're, you're rightly very kind of um, questioning our sort of obsession with looking to the past, you know, for for guidance of how we should be. How, how should we view the past, do you think, with a view to looking to the future, perhaps? Well, we can't help it, um, you know, and this happens on all ends of the spectrum. I think you get um, patriarchal, m modern patriarchal societies that look to the past to reinforce this idea that there is some kind of natural division of labor between men and women, that there is some natural way in which we should behave. So they look to ancient Athens or they look to ancient religious texts to reinforce this idea that um, patriarchy is natural. But you also get among feminists, in there is a lot of feminist literature that uh, looks to a matriarchal past as some kind of indicator that we can live a different way, that we don't have to live like this because once upon a time all humans were matriarchal and again we don't have good evidence for that necessarily we do have good evidence to suggest that uh, the way we thought about gender was far more varied in the past and that patriarchy was not universal that does have a history as a start date but um, I think all of this what it speaks to is we need to be, feel inspired before we can change things we need to feel that um, there is some kind of uh, underlying pattern to how we are supposed to live, and we are looking for that pattern in history. Um, and I think the lesson of history is that that pattern doesn't really exist. You know, where everywhere you look, people live in so many different ways, and they always have. They've always switched things around. Even in Chatelhuyuk, um, the different layers of that settlement indicate different periods of history because people would build new. Uh, every generation would build new uh, settlements on top of the old ones. And you can see sometimes there is social tension and then that dissipates and people go in a different direction. And that is how humans have always been. We've always had social conflict because every single one of us has a different idea of what an ideal society looks like. And what we have to remember, and I think this is the message of the book, is not that the past offers us guidance on how we can live now, what the past offers us is a lesson that we can build society any way we want. There is no natural inhibitor there. There is no barrier in biology or in history that says that you can't live this way. You can't have a more equal society if you want one. We just have to be imaginative and bold in trying to create it. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Hannah Kay and edited by Tom Hall. Don't forget, there's more of that discussion in a special extended edit waiting to dig into for Intelligence Squared members. Head over to intelligencesquared.com slash membership to sign up and get it all in one go, or just hit subscribe on Apple. You've been listening to Intelligence Squared, where great minds meet.